Welcome to the Grant Writing Simplified Podcast. This is the place to learn how to make a big impact in your community through grant writing and nonprofit consulting. The world needs you to step forward as a grant writer and use your skills to lead with confidence. I'm Teresa Huff, former special ed teacher turned grant writer and nonprofit strategist. In my 20 years of freelancing, I've helped nonprofits triple their funding and exponentially increase their reach. Now I'm stepping up to mentor freelancers and nonprofit leaders like you who are ready to take your skills to the next level. It's time to get intentional about your vision so you can create lasting change in your community. Learn the skills and strategies you need to become the grant writer the world needs. Let's do this. Welcome, and it's great to have all of you. And I want to first introduce our roundtable guests today. We've got, I'll just go in order, Kirsten Hill with Firespring, Michael Thatcher with Charity Navigator, Sean Hale with Philanthroforce, and Sherry Quam taylor who is a Fun, nonprofit revenue generating expert. And I am Teresa Huff with the Grant Writing Simplified podcast. So welcome everybody. As I had said earlier, feel free to pop your name, location, um, specialty in the chat, whether you are with a nonprofit or if you are joining us as a grant writer, as a donor, as just an interested good citizen who wants to get in on this conversation. Welcome. First of all, I would love for each of our roundtable guests to just introduce yourself quickly and tell us why are you here today for this conversation? Because all of you just very quickly said, yeah, I'm in when I threw this out Mm -hmm. as an idea. So I would love to hear what was it that made you just say immediately without even thinking twice, yes, I want to be in on that. Kirsten, you want to jump in? Yeah, sure. My name is Kirsten Hill. I am Director of Nonprofit Solutions at Firespring. We're a full-service marketing and communications agency that's based out of Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, I have about 20 years of nonprofit management and fundraising experience uh, with a variety of different kinds and sizes of nonprofits before I, I came to Firespring. And I think for me, it's that I have seen the, the mistakes that I made in my own organizations because I was avoiding the dreaded overhead percentage and just how, um, you know, it made me less effective as a, as a leader and as a community builder. And so this is a, a topic that I'm really passionate about. And I think uh, we can start to change those conversations in a really meaningful way um, and redirect people to talking um, more about the things that are actually meaningful for our organizations. Very good. Michael, how about you? Uh, hi, everyone. Michael Thatcher. I'm the president and CEO at Charity Navigator. Um, for me, I've been on a, at least with Charity Navigator, a, a seven and a half year journey trying to work on changing our ratings so that we aren't just talking about overhead, but talking about impact, talking about how you engage with your constituents, um, a wide variety of uh, what I would consider more more important measures that help a donor understand is this a strong organization and are they actually achieving results in what they've set out to do. So um, this is a area of personal passion of mine and also just working on how we measure social change has been a huge part of my life's focus. So delighted to be here. Mm-hmm. And 
Sean, how about you? Oh, thank you very much, Jason. It's wonderful to be here with everybody. I'm Sean Hale. Uh, by day, I get to lead a team of nine folks who help nonprofits with their finance and accounting and other administrative needs. And um, then my side gig with a, a friend of mine is Philanthroforce, which is the go-to place for nonprofits that are looking to find the right consultant. We launched last year and we have more than 400 uh, great specialists listed so far. And I'm here today because I get to see on a regular basis, not just over my 20 plus year career, but with the clients that we get to serve, just how much administratively this really ties organizations up in knots. The overhead myth leads so many good organizations to make choices that are penny wise and pound foolish because they feel like they are beholden to this thing and they that any any expense at all on administration is going to they're going to get a big wagging of the finger. And so it just isn't even considering this. This really holds them back and limits their ability to do good in the world. Yeah. All right. And Sherry. That leaves me. Uh, good morning. I'm Sherry Kwong Taylor talking to you from Chicago. And I work with nonprofit leaders who frankly need to scale their general, general operating revenue. And so the leaders I work with uh, need more unrestricted revenue so that they can invest in all the amazing initiatives in their strategic plans and can grow their budgets or double their budgets or triple their budgets. And um, so I work with growth-minded leaders who um, <clears throat> I would say in some ways are, are already fighting the, these myths we're going to talk about today. And um, I was interested in hopping on here because I really want uh, you know to, to shift this narrative um, to one of hope um, one of, we can get over this. We, uh, you know, leaders that I'm coaching on how, how do I have these investment level conversations? How do I, um, how do I talk about why my, you know, why my overhead might need to be 25 gasp 30% for a few years, because we're, we're doing these few things that's going to allow us to, to be this. And so, um, I'm really passionate about leaders and fundraisers, um, putting this elephant out in the room and really owning the business that they're running and then attracting the donors that get this. Because I think one of the biggest myths is that donors don't want to fund overhead and don't want to give general operating gifts. And um, I actually don't find that to be the truth when they're educated. Yes. And bingo. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is Teresa Huff. I host the Grant Writing Simplified podcast. And that is one of the big reasons that I wanted to pull this together and have this conversation is because I think it really does start with education. And to do that, we have to move upstream. I see it all the time in the grant writing world. And people are frustrated. They're working so hard and just not gaining traction the way they want to and the way they need to and wondering why not. And a lot of it comes down to education. We need to back up. We need to have better education, better conversations around each of these aspects. And the reason we have this specific group of people on the roundtable is I wanted very different perspectives, very different parts who are serving the sector from different avenues. And really through all our conversations, I can see this developing into an ongoing series of different backgrounds, different perspectives, different seats around the nonprofit table. So I think this is something that gets all of us fired up, which is a good thing because then we can help have better conversations and help equip our nonprofits, our clients, our community members, even our board members who want to help. They just don't know how. So.
So you can tell it gets me fired up. <laughs> so here we go. Let's have the conversation today. Michael, would you like to kick us off with a little bit of background context on some of the history and also how we have gotten here? And then we can really dive into what can we do going forward and how can we provide good tools and strategies? Sure. And uh, thank you. I think, you know, the... Um... And I'll answer you. I, I realize we have an international audience, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be speaking in more of a U.S. context because sure. I think that's um, the the reason I think this issue is as strong as it is is given the the tax forms that all nonprofits must file or the IRS form 990, and in that tax form we have to allocate how much of our spending is going to program expense, admin expense, and fundraising expenses. So that's sort of the, that's the core document. It's a public document that's available to any interested donor. And that allows people to see how much you're spending on this particular um, element. Now, one of the, the I think that's, that's kind of, the, um, that's the documentation. The other thing is that you have organizations, funders in particular, as well as some of the ratings agencies like ourselves 20 years ago when we started, that's what we looked at. We wanted to see that the money was being handled well. I think we, the way we actually talked about it was good stewardship of donor dollars, right? And so it's this idea that if the majority of the money is going towards a program expense, somehow that is going to produce um, better results. The challenge is that we don't, overhead doesn't tell you anything about results. It just tells you where the money gets spent. And so the, um, but that's the clearest data point that we have given the way the, the, the sector works right now. And also given the fact that um, we're not like a consumer market where if you have a bad product, you go out of business, you can have a bad product and the people receiving that product aren't actually the people paying for that product. There's a disconnect in the, in the whole, the, the, the delivery cycle of what happens in the nonprofit sector. So I think we've got the, we've got that one disconnect where it's not, you know, not market driven excellence. Then you have a lack of clear and consistent information on what the impact of an, an organization is making. And then we get, we end up using, or we have ended up using overhead as a proxy for, for impact. And so I think that's where we've, we've gotten into some trouble. We were, as we were warming up for this, uh, this discussion, um, Sean pointed out that we're about to celebrate the 10 year anniversary of a letter that was written by Charity Navigator, GuideStar, and BBB's Wise Giving Alliance, which was the overhead myth letter. So that was sort of the first time we put it in writing. And this was a letter that went to the donors of the United States saying, please stop looking at overhead, start looking at outputs, outcomes, and actual impact of organizations. That after that letter was published, it was suddenly a realization that, well, we don't actually have any impact data in a clear, concise way to actually point people to. So a second letter was written. This time it was written by this, it was written by the same three entities, and it was sent this time to the nonprofits of the United States saying, you got to start talking about your impact. You got to start reporting on it. Charity Navigator, GuideStar, and others started sort of also looking for ways, how can we actually rate impact 
and how can we do that across the wide variety of different cause areas that the sector's focused on. Um, we're still working on that. I think we've made a lot of progress. I'm proud that some of the changes that have happened at Charity Navigator, and I won't, I won't talk to the, I won't talk to our rating system now, but I think that's kind of the general overview is that we have, we have easy information, very simple numbers. It's a percentage. It's findable. It's part of your annual tax filing. And we don't have such a simple story when it goes to articulating the impact of organization. So it sounds like some awareness is happening and progress is in the works and it's an ongoing journey for all of us really, for having better conversations, for providing better data, for really figuring out how to dig in and use the data. That's a big key as well. And I just wanna note, as our audience has questions, please pop those in the chat and we will incorporate those as we go and try to answer as many of those with this conversation. Kirsten, did you have some additional thoughts on that? No, I mean, I, I think I think the question for all of us is, now that we're aware of it, how do we change it? Exactly. You know that I I think that's I think that's the big thing, and it I'm uh, I'm an activator as part of my personality, as part of my Gallup tens, you know, top five strengths or whatever. And so for me, ten years of having those conversations, but not really seeing the needle move in terms of of looking at impact over admin is kind of frustrating. And so how do we how do we change the conversations? Yes, exactly. And that's one thing I one reason I wanted to bring all of you together. How can we provide people with better tools, better conversations? How do we even start the conversation? And Sherry, you've mentioned this a lot, how to help people get over the fear of the conversation in the mm -hmm. first place and then realizing the importance of it. Yeah. I really um like all my clients hear me say fundraising is education. And, uh, you know, I'm always coming from a revenue perspective, but um, <clears throat> fund, it, like, and I'm, what I mean is like, we have to educate our boards um, <clears throat> it, when even starting at first step and saying, uh, hey, let's perhaps not be irrationally frugal this year when we put the budget in place. Let's uh, look at each other and say, are we budgeting in a way that is squeak by because we're worried about the 990? We're worried about that what that one donor says, and we're worried about how it looks, and we're worried about what percentage we're going to get on our ranking site. And should we actually own this um, and put in the budget what we need? And so I'm not saying triple your budget. You know, we're going to ease into it. But so often um, there's even just an education at I would say kind of that that business behind fundraising area where um, if we're starting there, we're starting on shaky ground and we're starting with a, a budgeted need um, that is really being handcuffed by this overhead conversation or the fear of the questions, um, that doesn't empower your team to raise to that need. And that um, actually keeps you from, from growing. And so I find that my clients who actually own the true need uh, put that irrational frugality to the side and, and then invest in learning how to raise to the need, actually uh, raise more money. You know, it, it feels counterintuitive. It feels opposite of what we've we've heard for so long. Um, but I want people to, to hear that um, fundraising is really education and it's, you know, sitting with donors and welcoming the conversation about the percentage and saying, I'm so glad you asked me that. Could I walk you through this? And so as leaders of nonprofits, I want you to lean in hard 
and put shoulders back and sit confidently at the table and, and know the answers to why you need to invest in this this year, why your staff might need you know, increased training in this area, why you need this specific technology. Um, because you're running a great business and that business is changing lives. And so um, own it and attract those donors who get this. You think some of that comes from unintentionally, we tend to lie to ourselves about things are better or worse than they are. <laughs> and sometimes like even just, oh, my house is pretty clean. And then you start looking around and you realize, oh, it's a mess. Uh, you know, there's a ton of dirt hiding here. And sometimes we do that in our nonprofits. We think it's way better or way worse than it is. And like, oh, we can't define the budget that way. That would be way too much. When really, are we truly being honest with ourselves and our team of what it takes to operate successfully and to truly serve our clients well, because that's what it's about is serving our mission and our communities in a way that actually meets the needs, not just bare bones. And that piece of it, I think we need to fully own and acknowledge first in order to truly have the conversations and be able to map out those plans. Yes, indeed. If I can jump in on that and, and build on what you, Teresa, and you, Sherry, were saying, um, there's there's work that needs to be done externally, but I think nonprofits also have maneuverability and can do things. But part of it is we, it's gotten so ingrained in so many of our minds that we need to make choices that looked at from a, a third party perspective can are actually kind of penny wise and pound foolish because we've gotten so ingrained in ourselves that we suck it up, we suck it up, and we do the cheapest possible thing rather than being smart and strategic and careful stewards of the money, but not just, I'm always going to buy the cheapest thing, never going to replace the staff's computers. And if I can give a, a, a tell a little story, there was once a nonprofit that I got to serve and really smart people in management, blue ribbon board, great staff, and Everybody on staff, there were about 20 people on staff, they were all using laptops that had been donated three or four years before from a funder. The funder had said, hey, nonprofit, these, this equipment is too old for our staff, so we're going to upgrade our staff's computers. Would you like these old computers for your staff? And so, of course, this nonprofit said, woohoo, we got new equipment. And three, four years later, these, these computers are now six, seven years old, and Sure enough, they're having to reboot multiple times a day. They're moving slowly. They needed constant tech support. And so I went to the leader and said, hey, this is obviously really, really bad. Can we fix this? And that did not change the, the equation. And so I went and I did some calculations to really spell out why this was so bad. And just by using very conservative estimates of how much staff time was getting wasted with bad equipment staff time getting wasted while they were waiting to reboot these computers. Not to mention, we wouldn't even talk about the morale impact that it has on staff to give them crummy equipment and the bad message it gives them. Just, so just wasted time. If all that got wasted was an average of 15 minutes uh, a day for these staff, we're talking about easily $2,000 a year in wasted time. You compare that to buying them a new computer for six or 700 bucks, that computer pays for itself in six months or less. So yeah, like, oh, it's a shock to spend this money, but you know what? You're not having to add another person to your staff to make up for all the wasted time that your other people can't do. So there are a lot of things that we can do 
much like Sherry mentioned, if, you know, we want to continue moving the needle on the overhead myth, but at the same time, there are choices and behaviors that we can change internally, where we can be much better stewards of the money and be much more effective with the money we have, and that that don't require miracles, that don't require anybody external. We can we can make changes as well while we're working to fix the the handcuffs of the overhead myth. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It goes hand in hand. And I think we do forget to account for some of those hidden costs too. Like you said, the morale issue or just the stress, the extra workload, the wasted time, the longer time it takes to do things. We forget to count the cost of those and how much it's truly costing in addition to simply dollar signs. Well, I would love to discuss like how can we have better conversations with our board and how can we equip our board, first of all, to understand this, but then also to go out and have better conversations in the community around this and speaking to any of our roundtable members today. Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to, I'll answer your question, maybe tie on to what Sean was saying. Sure. Um, I'm actually timely, I'm putting together a training. I don't know what it is yet uh, for quarter one next year. Um, and I think this is a, a, a cousin topic, I guess is what I'll say. Um, and it's, it's a boards give get. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of give gets. I think they leave hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table. And specifically, I think that that get side, you know, tying to Sean's computer issue uh, from day one, then it sets the tone to say, we should get everything for free. Can we go get free stuff? You know, and what happens then? We get free PR, we get free communications, we get free accounting, we get free all these things. And um, our, our nonprofits center at the bottom of the to-do list for all of those consultants or contractors or companies, of course, because they're, they're, they're on billable hours. And so I think there's things like that that just set the tone from day one with a board that say, we shouldn't spend money on everything. We shouldn't invest in ourselves. Um, and so I, I, a lot of my clients have gotten rid of their give gets and it has really opened up um, the, the conversation of, of with board members saying, we need to invest in our organization consistently and not just in our programs, but across the board in our admin and our fundraising. And so that's just an example I was thinking of, of Sean when, you know, maybe a board member said, oh, my get was... I have a $5,000 get. And so I got 10 old computers. So, you know, done for the year. Um, And that doesn't serve anybody. Right. In terms of the board conversation, and I'm I'm totally in agreement with this. And I think there's a couple of things. One is one thing is the overhead myth is something that we propagate and repropagate because people that are less close to what we do or where the different measurement is, they have an old idea and they bring that idea out. That often shows up in the board conversation. If you look at, um, you know, I'll use the charity navigator rating as a case in point. It used to be the predominant part of the rating. Right now, it's it's a tiny part of the rating. It's almost insignificant. We've, re, we've redone everything. It's up to the nonprofits to actually stay current with that and be able to go and say, here's my charity navigator rating. They're rating me on culture and community, leadership and adaptability, impact and results, Oh, yeah, there's also accountability and finance, but it's just a small part of the rating right now. It's not all about overhead. So if you stay current, then you can re-educate your board. I, I actually think we often have to be informing our boards as to what's actually really going on in the world that we're doing, particularly as management, because what, what we face as management is, is um, 
you know, that's the day to day of our world. The other, the other part of uh, the way I like to think about this is overhead is measured in annual increments, attrition, staff morale. That can that doesn't follow an, uh, a twelve month cycle. That follows whatever cycle it is. Could be three years, but if you you burn someone out over three years and they spin out of your organization, that's really expensive. Particularly if they're one of your top players, you've been underpaying them, giving them lousy equipment to work on. That's just it's demoralized, right? And at the end of the day, people are going to move on and they're going to move to where they can find a place where they can actually contribute and and also have a decent lifestyle in doing it. So I think it's if you can show them what will happen in the long run, um, that's where you, you really have to talk in multi-year uh, increments, even though you know, the overhead you're measuring on your tax forms, that's annual. They've got to be able to have that conversation and with your donors too. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think a lot of it is it's talking about what are those consequences when we under invest in our organizations, there is a direct, there's a direct correlation, whether it's staff turnover or poor IT infrastructure or poor performance management systems or tracking or, you know, less accountability, less oversight, whatever it is, we're actually doing harm to our organizations. And so I, I think that we have to point out those unintended consequences. Uh, as nonprofit leaders, we live it every day. And so it seems very clear to us. But when we, when you're sitting on a board, you maybe come in once a month or you come in, you know, gosh, if you only meet quarterly, you come in four times a year and you don't see those consequences. It's, it's harder to understand. So I do think that uh, right or wrong, the impetus has to be on nonprofit leaders to educate boards of directors, community leaders, um, those folks on on the the consequences of the underinvestment and what can be done when you invest appropriately. I agree. And we within the nonprofit, we have to keep in mind sometimes we are so close to it, we may not realize what people don't understand about the work we're doing. And you alluded to this, Kirsten, is like even with grant writing, to me, I've done it so long, certain things are normal, but a new student comes into my program and says, what does this mean? Or what's this basic term? And I'm so used to saying RFP or case for support. They're like, wait, what in the world? So we forget board members sometimes come in, they haven't either been on a board, they haven't worked with a nonprofit, or they don't understand our nonprofit. So it may come down to also putting ourselves in the shoes of someone brand new and looking at it through their eyes and helping them understand just the very basics, first of all, and the basics of what is a 990, <laughs> because maybe some of them don't even know what that form is, let alone how to look at it and use the information accurately, and then how not to use it. And as you were saying earlier, Sean, so sometimes keeping that perspective in mind is important. Yeah, to build on everything y'all said, and also to respond somewhat to Jason's question on how do we make the case? How do we I do that, especially when we're cash strapped. And so like, where do we come up with money to buy these new computers or whatever? Um, I think a lot of it does come down to data and connecting the dots with the financial part. And part of it is the 
the kind of emotional and the telling the story part of it, which is important, but some people do respond more to numbers. And so being able to paint that picture for them um, and get very specific about, you know, here's how quickly these computers will pay for themselves. Or, you know, every time we have turnover, it costs uh, from 25 to 150% of the annual salary of that position. And so if we can take our organization's turnover from 30% down to 5%, it's going to pay for itself this way, right? By staff that are more productive, that we don't have to spend time training. And by breaking the cycle of turnover, which is deadly expensive and very harmful for morale. Or, um, <clears throat> yeah, there are just other ways of connecting these, these dots for folks that sometimes they do need to grasp onto the money and understand that it's it's there are there are, there are financial pieces that, that go beyond what you would typically put into a, a budget template but that need to inform that budget template and yeah it, it is that some of that staff stuff that stuff that's harder harder to it's it's not part of that the regular conversation but it needs to be as a part of that education component mm -hmm. agree well and i think it's it's connecting overhead to program, right? So it the money, it, we I think because we look at that figure almost separately, we don't we don't often acknowledge the fact that the money that we're investing in overhead is still supporting our programs. It's still supporting our organization. We are still growing and doing good. Um, and so when when we focus too much on that, then we're we're not connecting the dots for people how how investing in overhead also increases program success. And I think when I was leading nonprofits and and asking funders to to support overhead, it's the magic is in connecting those dots, right? So if you show the funder how this investment in overhead leads to this success in the program, I think they're much more willing to support it. And sometimes that comes down to a mix of things. Like Sean, you said some people really resonate with statistics and numbers and seeing the black and white. And then Kirsten, we were talking earlier about your story brand book. And some people are really going to hit home with a story and something powerful. And then Michael, you and I were talking the other day on the podcast and you shared really eloquently about this piece of the smaller the nonprofit, the more integral the director or some of the key people are to the programs themselves, as opposed to overhead. So go ahead if you want to expand on that. Yeah, I, I think both. And this is um, particularly for smaller, younger nonprofits, there's often a, um, or there can be lack aware of awareness of how to allocate one's time with regard to reporting. And as the as the CEO of an organization, you may be you may be spending time on program. You may you will definitely spend time on admin, and you'll also spend time fundraising. You just have to allocate your time that way. And you have certain roles that are more clearly defined as overhead. Something like HR um, is definitely going to be more in an overhead area. But you've got to just you so get make sure you know what you're doing with the reporting. Don't. It's going to sound strange, but don't necessarily trust your accountants. Work with your accountants to, so that you really have clarity um, on when you're preparing your, your tax filing so that you're actually reporting accurately. And then I think the other thing is just, um, well, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Those are really the things with regard to that question, Teresa. 
well, I think what you said there, whether it's an accountant, a social media manager, a grant writer, whatever the role, we can only do so much with the information you give us. Like my, some people say to me, oh, I'm afraid I'll, I'm sending you way too much stuff or I'm going to overwhelm you with all the information. I need information. I can't pull a grant out of a hat. <laughs> we have to have the information. Then I can refine and pick and choose from that of what's relevant for this project. But I'm sure it's the same with accountants. You can only work with what you're given. You can't just magically create something that's not there. So the more we communicate and partner with our strategic people, the more critical that is to be able to build that story accurately and the whole picture. And just on that last point, and this is sort of where data and story come together. That's your 990. It's not a fun document to read, but any foundation is going to read it. Any, any evaluator is going to read it. We're, every, we're all looking at your 990. And if you're not as the CEO or the, the, the management team, guess what? Your board should be reading it too. Um, that's, that's your storyboard, right? And so you should really care what goes into that document and um, make sure you're, you're across it. And that if you trust too much, if you tell your accountant to tell your story, I think that's, that's problematic. You have to tell your own story and you work with them to make sure you get the data right and the numbers right. And that may be right there. Something to start with for some nonprofits is sitting down with the board and educating them on, here's the 990, here are the parts, here's what it means. And just literally walking them through that step-by-step step and holding their hand to teach them what it means and how to use it. I would also, we're talking board, but fundraising teams don't know how to read 990s you know and, and sometimes it's not their not their fault a lot of times it's like budget approved from the leader go raise this amount um you know and then we're our fundraising teams are on the spin cycle of you know all the traditional fundraising methods and, and they're not allowed to really un, not only tell the organization story but also tell the financial story of the organization which then leads to the impact story and so I find so often that organizations are not securing, you know, large amounts of, of general operating support to put into overhead um, because, frankly, their team is not having uh, in-depth conversations about their financial story, how they're going to grow, why they need these types of gifts. Um, either they haven't been trained how to do it, um, or maybe they're they're great at, you know, events or grant writing or appeals and campaigns. But, but they actually haven't had that training of how would I sit down CEO to CEO and lead them through the 990, lead them through the financials, lead them through our strategic plan. Um, and so I find that um, there's, there's a real, uh, there's, you know, there's a need to invest in our fundraising teams um, because it's not just like, all right, we're going to go from 1 million to 2 million, go raise it. Um, that's not setting them up for success. They've got to be an integral part of this financial story and understand it deeply. Um, so many development directors even say to me like, oh, I hope they don't ask me the numbers questions in this meeting. And I'm like, I hope they do ask you those things. And we're going to, this is how we're going to answer it. And so um, get comfortable having the financial conversation. And that is from your 990. I love that document. I know we, we were talking about our, our love hate with it, but because it's a forward-facing document. We have to know what's in there and know how it really is driving our growth uh, and to be able to, to myth bust, you know, when, when donors are questioning it. It's critical. 
Right. And, you know, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to come back to is that sometimes when it falls to the bottom that people are doing this or that pro bono or volunteer, or you're just kind of piecing it together to save a dime, when really that leaves you with a very disjointed strategy. It leaves you with your social media person doing one thing, your grant person doing another thing, your fundraising or your finance. Each team is working at separate different cross purposes Mm -hmm. instead of cohesively towards that same vision. And sometimes that does take an investment in building a core team and upfront realizing the importance of that funding centrally. So then that can maximize much more quickly and effectively on the mission. And again, ultimately it's about the mission. So how can we best impact that? And that's not always with pieced together bootstrapped strategies. Yeah. That or the flip side of that is let's hire one person to do all 16 of those things, you know, which (laughs) I you can't wear 10 dozen hats at the same time. Maybe three. (laughs) Uh, But I think we've seen a lot of that with, with the, the, the high turnover. It's like, we cannot expect these leaders to to do more on less anymore, and um, and it's it's keeping people from raising money. It's keeping people from from really fully funding their organizations. And so I think that's that's what I see so often. If um, you know, gosh, like three job descriptions in one, and to say let's start here, so we can start getting revenue in, especially fundraising departments, so that then we can invest. Uh, you know, maybe we start with a. A, a contractor doing this part or a part-time person doing this part. Um, but but oftentimes we're just stuck in this, you know, we need more overhead, but we can't raise unrestricted revenue, but we need more overhead. And so it's like something has to push pause and fix and and really, you know, stop doing certain types of fundraising activities so we can start doing other activities that actually yield those gifts that then free the team and free the organization to invest in their growth and their infrastructure. Go ahead, Kirsten. Did you have something? Well, I was, I was just looking. Um, Adolfo had a a question in the chat that is is a hot button for me, and I don't I don't know what everybody controversial else, everybody else's everybody <laughs> right else's ahead. opinion is, but um, he said that they have donors who knowingly donate to cover overhead, and said, would it be reasonable to let new donors know that their donations go directly to the programs since overhead is covered by other donors? So I don't know what the rest of the panel thinks about this. Um, but I, I personally don't like that messaging. Um, because I think then what we're doing is we're continuing to tell people that overhead is bad. Uh, we are leaning into the myth, we are continuing to perpetuate the myth, you know, don't worry about this, because somebody else has taken care of it. Uh, as opposed to saying, Overhead isn't a bad thing. You know, I, I think we definitely need to, um, again, it's all about changing the conversations and how we're talking about how we fund and pay for the work that we do. Uh, and when we, when we say, you know, oh gosh, don't, you know, don't, don't worry about this. It, it makes donors think that that's still a bad thing. And so personally, I just, I think you just don't have that conversation. Uh, and, and, if you have donors who want to cover overhead, awesome. Thank them. Be incredibly grateful that that they understand it. They get it. Um, but then don't utilize that to continue to perpetuate that myth. That's just my two cents. 
No, I, I just I'll jump on them. And also, Jason's added something. You know, how does someone fund just overhead? I think it's more where you devote that funding. And but the, I just can't agree more with what uh, Kirsten's just said. In that, if you if you change the dialogue, you have to get away from overhead and really talk about other things. You know, there's there are a few areas. You know, I don't know if this is a good analogy or not. Um, and I'm sure you'll let me know if it's not. Um, but we used to used to see a lot of um, fundraising materials that were showing the hardship of individuals. And now you're seeing much more of that material showing the happy, you know, go from the starving baby to the happy baby. And that's actually dollar for dollar, you actually make more money by showing a, a happy baby versus a starving baby. You're telling a different story, right? Talking about just what it takes to keep the, the organization running is not as interesting as the impact that you're making in the world through the cause that you're serving. And, and that's where you really tell that story. This keeps bringing me back to, I believe, Sean, it was your post the other day on LinkedIn where you said, should we even be calling it overhead anymore? Should we start calling it something else like infrastructure or impact or something else? What do you all think of that? Should we start shifting the language? When people ask us about overhead, do we gently, subtly incorporate back to them different language and start retraining them to use those words instead? I spent, um, I've spent more than 10, oh gosh, almost 15 years of my career doing workplace giving fundraising. So, um, and there, there are tons of questions about overhead. That's the number one question that I would get asked when I would go out and speak and ask people to donate through, through their workplace and, and give to, to the organizations they care about. And, in a, invariably, in almost every single presentation I would give, I would get asked the overhead question, how much money actually goes to the programs or how much money actually goes to this? And I would always say, I, I'll answer your question. First, I want to tell you about the impact that these organizations have. First, I want to tell you about how we're changing communities. I want to tell you about XYZ. Then I could go back and answer that question, but I do think that you have to refocus. And I think it's about really flipping the conversation and having different conversations that are about impact and telling the story of the work that your organization is doing. Um, and then you can always go back and give them that percentage, but don't just focus on that percentage. I love that approach because you're acknowledging upfront their question. I'm going to answer your question. Let me give you this information first, and then we'll come back to that. Just like in grant writing, where we say address the red flags up front, be transparent with those. You're doing the same thing. You're not glossing over it and trying to dodge the question. You're full on saying, I will answer that. First, let's talk about this, and then we'll come back to that. And by the time you come back to it, they have a whole different context and perspective, and it keeps the conversation going as opposed to just shutting them down and saying, no, don't do that. <laughs> You're using that to draw them into the story. Sean, go This ahead. is echoed in all of the all the storytelling that we see through advertising, right? What, what pizza place talks about how much their pizza oven costs or how much their general manager is getting paid every year, right? They tell you about this delicious, hot pizza with great cheese and great ingredients. 
and how wonderful you're going to feel after you have a slice or two. And that's, that's the story that people need to respond to. And really, that's the most important thing, right? At the end of the day, it's, if it's a pizza, it's, it's, it's how great is the pizza? And did I get it for, you know, maybe I got it for a reasonable price, but not about how much exactly went into the pizza oven or the general manager salary. Right. It's more about you see the picture of game day gathered with friends or the family sitting around the table. It's not those logistics, but it is tied to that. And that's a part of that. What would go ahead, Michael? Yeah, I was going to, you know, there's um, one of the things I've observed, at least, you know, from a from the lens of Charity Navigator, and we serve essentially the average American donor. We have about 11 million unique visitors coming to our site every year. And one of the biggest concerns that we get from the donor is this, it's this feeling of wanting to trust the charity. And so I think they use our ratings as a, as a proxy for, you know, it's essentially a trust building mechanism. When you're asked the overhead question, someone's, someone's looking for something to, to establish trust. And that's why they're asking you that question. So part of it, if, if you're in dialogue, which is actually great, um, figure out what it, what, what's important for them in, in building trust and then speak to that. You may have to, you know, to, you may have to give them your percentages. That's fine. But you ultimately, you want them to trust you because at the end of the day, and that is when, you know, think of everything where we're going now with, you know, you're trying to get the donor to a place where they're going to let you do your job as a nonprofit leader and actually make a difference in the world. So figuring out the trust piece is really a key. I agree. And that goes with telling the story along with it and the impact of the story and the difference it's making to be able to build that trust and show that, hey, because of this, we can manage these funds well. We can make an impact and a difference. Mm -hmm. I would also add the trust element. Um, this takes time. Like this is not one conversation and you're, someone's writing a major gift. Um, I think a lot of times one of the biggest mindset, mindset shifts, that was hard to say, um, for leaders I'm coaching is like, especially individuals when maybe they, they're used to having these kind of quick conversations with foundations or companies. You want to sponsor? Can I submit this? If we're talking to individuals, major donors who we actually are educating, we're building trust, we're figuring out what might keep them from giving their best gift. This is months and months, sometimes years, even though we don't want it to take that. So we have to continually be having these conversations and that not only builds trust, but we're going to be transparent in those conversations. So my advice to people would be slow it down slow it down. So listen to the questions and say, I love, I loved how you framed that question. Would it be okay if I came back and, uh, and, and shared this with you? Might be something financial. Um, I love, I love talking to a, a donor who's a CFO. Like let's, let's bring the, the numbers to the table. Let's get their feedback. Let's educate them. And so um, I think like in the sector, it's like, oh my gosh, it's fiscal year and it's calendar year and it's giving Tuesday. Like we're, we're just on this fast pace. And, you know, donors at a certain part and up, like we got to slow down the cadence to build the trust. Um, I, I just would give that advice to people to say, yeah, we are, takes quite a few one-on-ones and I will wait to ask that donor for their best gift. I don't care how long it takes um, because that's how we fully fund our organizations. 
it's planting seeds and having the patience to wait and water and tend and cultivate and watch it grow. And something I'm seeing a common thread is along with the conversations, it's a marathon. I mean, this is not a quick fix. It's not a quick dime in the door. There are times where, yeah, we have bills to pay, but there are a lot of things we have to do to build that long-term mindset and that long-term marathon. And it comes to educating and building the trust. And what I'm seeing this common thread among all of you is I think we're trained so often. Somebody asks us a question, we feel obligated to immediately answer the direct exact question. And I'm not by any means saying to dodge the question, but I'm saying sometimes they're asking a question because they don't know what else to ask. So it's up to us to read into that and to give them what they actually are asking and need to know. They just don't know differently. So we aren't necessarily obligated to immediately answer that exact thing. We need to do a better job of giving them the full picture, giving them that better perspective and teaching them along the way. And then that helps them come alongside us in the conversation so that they can understand more context. If we answer the question directly, it's what they needed. They move on. They say, "Um, no, that's too much overhead. Forget it. But if we say, yes, let me tell you about the overhead and let me show you the difference it's making because of this overhead. And let me show you how our programs have grown once we started investing in more staff and more capacity and better training, better technology, whatever it may be, then that helps paint the bigger picture for them. But Sherry, to your point, it does take time. It's not a quick fix. And it is laying that groundwork over time to train for the marathon. What would you say is one big piece that has helped shift your perspective in your role in working with nonprofits? We all work with nonprofits in a little different aspect. So what's one big thing that has really been like a clicking point for you? And I'm I'm speaking to all the panelists here. I'll just start by saying, you know, 13, I don't know, I've lost count, you know, years ago when I left corporate and joined a nonprofit that I was really passionate about, um, you know, my, my fresh perspective and maybe, you know, I, I was naive. Um, we were like, well, if, I was from out of corporate and I was like, well, of course we would spend money on that. Of course we would hire this. We probably spent without handcuffs, um, just simply because we didn't, we didn't really know this was such a weighty issue. And um, we tripled the revenue in 18 months because we invested in what we needed. And I think that has set the pace, you know, to how I run my business. And um, the truth is when you invest in your organization, you raise more money and then you put that back into programs. Um, That is the flat out truth. And so we, I think as leaders, um, like we, we have to believe that. We have to stop telling ourselves the story of, well, donors only want to fund this, or they would, they're going to ask me this question. Maybe, but maybe not. And so I would just, I, I see donors say, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Well, of course we would, of course we would make an unrestricted gift. Well, you asked me for a project-based gift last time. 
And so I think we as leaders have way more control of this than we think of, um, of really taking that time and leading them to a deep understanding and then leading them to a, a mission-based unrestricted gift. Um, you can do that. Like believe that you can do it and, and just make sure you're not in your head and telling yourself stories that might not be ultimately true. Are there donors who are going to ask these tough questions? You bet. We all have, we've all had them, but um, not everybody. Investment level donors get this. A lot of donors get this. People who are running and scaling businesses who are giving to your organization get this. So believe, believe that people will give in this way. I've seen this happen too, just like Sherry described. There's an organization I once got to serve many years ago, a membership organization. And it was deeply, deeply in this, this whole world of like, we're still in the Great Depression and, and there's no escape from it. And so we're going to save every scrap of tinfoil and every rubber band and every little build a ball of twine. And um, it was it was rough. And a new later leader came in. And <clears throat> one of the very good things that she did was she came with a an attitude of abundance. And, you know, that did not mean that we went out and had a big party the next day and like spent all the savings and it was all gone. Right. But it did mean how are we going, we're, we're not going to be restricted completely by, we will never spend a, a dime on anything. And uh, it, it began with some small things like, you know, this is a membership organization. So instead of, you know, at the table with the coffee and bagels and stuff in the morning, instead of like having a, a, you know, kind of expecting money to pay for the people, members to pay for their coffee. Every time I was like, no, we're going to take that bowl away. And we found some money to just like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to pay for this. We're not asking people to donate to get their cup of coffee at the membership gathering. And also we're going to start bringing in breakfast tacos, partially because that's a Texas thing and it's delicious, but partially because it's also just like, no, come in and enjoy and have, have this sense of community. And this was one of the key ingredients to helping this community change its whole dynamic around money and its whole spirit. Instead of it being kind of a grasp onto every dollar for you know its life, um, and changing the, the attitude and the spirit of the organization to one of abundance. And these kinds of changes helped the organization to flourish. It was a cultural change. And it was and it absolutely more than paid for itself financially, even though it was the, the big, beautiful part of it was really the, the beauty, the blossoming of the organization of having that attitude of abundance. And besides, tacos make everything better, right? <laughs> I mean, no matter what time of day. And, you know, sometimes the status quo doesn't do us any favors. It helps to either not know about the status quo. Like you said, Sherry, coming in, you didn't know, so you did it differently. And sometimes it helps to look at what is the status quo and how can we do it different? That may mean buying coffee and investing that time and that quality conversation in your community and just those small things. Kirsten or Michael, what are some, what was a, catalyst moment for each of you? I, I think for me, it, it was, um, it, it's about, you know, it's a little bit building off of what Sherry was talking about in terms of getting to know your donors, but it was also about showing vulnerability and letting people know that I didn't have all the answers, but here's where I was trying to go and, and that I needed help. And that, and that, that increased the level of investment and buy-in and partnership at that point. And I, I think it's about not separating overhead from 
organizational success. Um, you know, when you talk about the fact that when we invest in ourselves, we achieve more success, we do more because we're investing in the organization as a whole. And I, I think it's, it's just looking at it differently and, and then showing other people that, that, that perspective um, that, you know, when, when we have good staff that we can pay well and, um, and we support them, you know, health and emotional and financially, um, then we're, we do better work. And that makes our community better. That makes our organization better. It makes our programs better. And so tying those things together, I think is, is really important and, and showing the donor, um, the board, everybody else, how those tie together. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that comes back to transparency and what each of you have been saying all along. We do have one last question I'd like to hit before we wrap this up is what would help motivate a donor that gives say a thousand dollars to support the mission? What would motivate them to increase that support to five or $10,000? Is your organization just doing more of the same? This may not be compelling enough. I would say, ask the donor that question. (laughs) Uh, What, what would, uh, what would inspire you to grow your gift? I mean, like we just got to listen. To me, the answer to that, if we don't know, then we we have to go into listening mode. Mm-hmm. We have to really unearth what might block them from doing that. Um, you know, what what what's their mission for giving is what I would ask back. Yeah. And that's probably been one of my biggest catalyst things is learning to listen and learn from the people in the world, whether it's the nonprofits, the grant makers the community members, the clients is just learning to listen. If we're stuck on something, okay, let's go out and ask good questions and not worrying about what am I going to say? Am I going to present this right? It's just more of, hey, I'd love to learn more about you and what's driven you to support this or what kinds of causes really inspire you. And just listening to that and becoming a part of that and letting them become a part of the work we're doing and partnering together. Kirsten, go ahead. I think you were going to jump in. Well, I was just going to say, I think in addition to doing, to doing more, it's doing better, you know? So not only can we continue doing what we're doing, we might be able to serve more people, but we can do it better. Um, and, and I think donors often will respond to that need for it just improvement, right? You want to make the organization better. You want to make your community better. And so I, I think that it's not doing more of the same. It's it's doing more and it's doing more better. Uh, so, you know, having having those kind of conversations that are really forward thinking and growth, um, growth oriented. Right. I think a lot of that comes down to putting the fear aside and realizing these are people. Let's get to know the people and build the relationships with the people. We don't have to be afraid of these people. (laughs) We can build friendships and true meaningful relationships and partnerships with them and collaborate. And once we set the fear aside and really focus on the bigger vision and the mission and why we're doing this, that's when that authenticity comes through and we can really start having the better conversations around it. And they will see, this is what we're about. This is why we're so passionate. We want you to be a part of this with us and being transparent about the struggles 
and also the wins along the way so they can be a part of that journey. Well, I know we are right at time, so I don't want to keep everyone, but I so appreciate all of you panelists for coming in and being willing to have this conversation because I know there are people out there struggling with this and wondering how do we handle it. So I think this has been incredibly valuable with some practical takeaways of rethinking the approach, the language, the conversations around it. And let's definitely keep the conversation going on LinkedIn, on email. I'll follow up with resources and the replay. And yeah, we would all love to hear from those of you who attended and love to connect with you and hear more about the work you're doing. So please feel free to stay connected. Thanks for hosting, thanks. Teresa. Yes, thanks for getting yeah, us all together. Thank Appreciate you. it. Happy yes. to do it. All right, that was quite the conversation, wasn't it? <laughs> Getting several experts from different perspectives, different parts of the sector, and serving in different ways to brainstorm and talk through possible solutions. We really want to continue this and, like I said, have this from different perspectives, different topics, different myths that we can bust. So I would love to hear from you. And I would also love to hear what strategy will you implement? What was your biggest takeaway from this conversation and how will it influence your work? I'd love to hear. So please come connect with me on LinkedIn or join our private LinkedIn community or shoot me a message on my website and we will continue the conversation. I'd love to hear what you would like for future episodes. And if we do this again, make sure to sign up at nonprofitmythbusters.com. All right. If I don't talk to you again in the next couple weeks, then I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. I know we're wrapping up 2022, and so I hope you enjoy some extra time with your family and friends and get some rest in the midst of sometimes a very busy season. So just take some time to really enjoy. And, you know, I always say to go change your world, and sometimes that just means the little day-to-day -day interactions. You don't know what a kind word or just a smile in the middle of a hectic, stressful situation can do for somebody. And little by little, we continue changing our world one person, one grant, one nonprofit, one smile at a time. So with that, my friends, Merry Christmas and go change your world. <music>